When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to share a review from Podchaser with you. Diva said, I'm glad this podcast exists for writers seeking information and personal stories about the process of getting and staying published. Sarah is a wonderful host. Thank you so much, Diva, for your kind comments and for reaching out. Publishing is so opaque. There are so many things that you don't know you don't know. So having these people to talk things through where you're like, am I like, is it just me? Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I'm your host, Sarah Nicholas. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the stories authors are sharing with you. If you are, please consider leaving a review on your podcast app or sharing the episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show with a couple bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. Today, we're going to be talking to Cozy Mystery author Mia P. Manansala. Mia is a writer and certified book coach from Chicago who loves books, baking, and badass women. She uses humor and murder to explore aspects of the Filipino diaspora, queerness, and her millennial love for pop culture. Her debut novel, Arsenic and Adobo, is out now, and I'm actually listening to it right now. <laughs> so welcome <laughs> to the show, Mia. Yeah, thanks for having me. And the audiobook is really good. It's really important to have a good audiobook narrator, and you have a good one, so I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I was super excited that we were able to find a fellow Filipino-American audiobook narrator who was also fluent in Tagalog. So having someone with that kind of background knowledge of the culture and also enthusiasm for the work was was so important to me. Mm -hmm. You got your current agent after two weeks of querying. <laughs> yes. And then she sold your book at auction after two weeks of being out on submission. Mm -hmm. So if someone just listens to that kind of last part of your journey publication, it sounds super easy, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. So I'm excited to kind of dive into your story today. <laughs> yeah. It, again, it's one of those, you know, people always say like overnight success, but they don't see like all the work that happened before it <laughs> that mm -hmm. led to that. So yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. All right, let's go all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing and how long did it take from then before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? So like many writers, I imagine I have always loved books. I've always loved reading and writing. I've always liked making my own stories, but I never really finished anything. You know, it, it was kind of like a, a hobby. It was something that I thought, you know, like even now I consider like authors rock stars. Like the fact that I know so many published writers is like amazing to me. But, you know, especially as a child, you know, before social media, I never imagined it was something that was possible for me. So I kind of like dabbled, especially like in high school. I stopped in college. I was an English major in college, but that was more, you know, like academic writing and research as opposed to creative writing. But it was in 2015. I was going to be turning 30 soon. I had just returned after spending years abroad teaching English. And I felt kind of stuck in a rut. I wanted to, you know, and I, I, 
I was like, is this really all that's out there for me? And then I remembered how much I loved writing. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe this is something I can, I can do for real. Like maybe this is something I can finally invest my time and effort in. So I took my very first writing class, a creative writing class in 2015, which happened to just be a mystery, a one day mystery workshop. Before this, I didn't actually think I was going to be a mystery writer. I always thought I was going to be maybe in kid lit or fantasy or something like that. Um, I always loved reading mystery, uh, but that one day workshop kind of changed everything for me. Interesting. Can you tell us more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author? Yeah. So as I said, in that, that one day workshop, I came up with the idea for my first, so not my first published novel, but the first book that I would ever take to completion. It was a book about a murder mystery that takes place at a comic book convention. And I got the idea during that workshop and I kind of wrote maybe some opening lines and the the general idea. And the teacher of that class, uh, Lori Rader Day, read what I wrote and she asked me if I had ever you know, written before or taken this kind of class. I'm like, no, this is my very first time. And she told me, she's like, I think you're a mystery writer. Like what you have here is really something. And I want, I really hope you take it to completion. And at the time she was the president of the Mystery Writers of America Midwest chapter. And she was also a member of Sisters in Crime. And so she told me about these organizations and how they had free meetings that were open to anyone, no matter what stage of your career or writing journey you were in. And because she was so welcoming and because she made me feel like, oh, I really can do this. That's how it all started. That's you know, where I found out things like what a query letter was. I, you know, I had no idea what that meant, you know. Yeah, that's actually the next <laughs> question. Um, so once you decided you want to be a Polish author, how did you learn more about the publishing industry? Like how it works, how to go about it, how to query all those different things? So because of my involvement with the, the Mystery Writers of America and then also the Sisters in Crime later on, I attend lots of the meetings. So I got very, very, it was like, it was like a weird like kismet kind of thing because I'm actually now in the suburbs of Chicago and in so many writing things are usually in the city and really hard for me to get to because I don't drive. But those meetings were held literally a mile from my house at my local bookstore that I could walk to. And it was like, come on, Mia, like it's, it, you know, is there a stronger sign where it's like <laughs> literally just down the street from you? So attending those meetings, I got to meet lots of people, again, different stages of their career. You know, I got to hear agents talking about what it was they did. And I was like, oh, that's how you get published. You know, I learned what query letters were and I heard, you know, what worked and what didn't. Through my involvement in those organizations, I also started entering uh, contests for unpublished writers. And I won a grant from the Malice Domestic Grant. And while I went to that convention to uh, accept that award, I met Kelly Garrett, (laughs) who is a member of those organizations, but she's also heavily involved in Pitch Wars, which she told me about. And she eventually went on to become my mentor. And then so that's, you know, it's, it's one of those like you meet one. It's like it was like a domino effect. Like this one person introduced me to this one organization, which introduced me to this, which and like it just kind of kept on going from there. So your journey from there to a publication contract had some stops and starts along the way. Mm-hmm. So what happened in between then and uh, signing your first book contract? 
Yeah. So as I said, the book I started working on during that workshop is not the book that's out now. So that book, Death Comes to Comic-Con, it got me that grant. It got me into pitch wars. It got me my mentor. It even got me my first agent, but it never sold. I was on submission for about a year and a half, which is quite some time, right? (laughs) Definitely not an overnight success. And it got close several times. I made it to acquisitions a couple of times only for the sales team to say like, we can't sell this. We don't know how to market it. I actually did get interest from a particular publisher only for them to shut down three days after (laughs) they said they wanted to acquire my book. So, you know, that was also a bump in the road. While all of this was going on, I was writing the next thing because that was one of the best pieces of advice that I got is that you have to keep busy. You need to start planning the next thing because writing is a marathon and you never really know what's going to sell and what's not. So, you know, while all that was going on, I was writing the book that would become Arsenic and Adobo. And it took me a while to finish because, again, there was a lot of starts and stops, personal life issues, family health issues, some deaths in the family. But once I finally got it done and I sent it to my then agent, she didn't like it. <laughs> she was very honest with me because we were both at a, at a certain crossroads in our career. She had some stuff going on as well as I did. And she was very honest with me. She told me, I love the book that I couldn't sell. This book I could easily sell because it's much more marketable, but I don't love it. Hmm. And you deserve somebody who does. So we amicably split up and I had to start querying again. But luckily, I think, you know, because I had some, you know, some friends who were able to do like referrals to me. And I think also, again, because it was just an easier, technically more marketable book. I, I did pretty well with the querying again. And so I signed with my agent, Jill Marshall of the Marshall Lion Literary Agency within two weeks. Um, She was technically a referral, but I don't feel bad about that because I know (laughs) because I had been referred to her from with a different author client of hers for my first book. And she sent me a very kind and thorough rejection explaining why. So she gave me real feedback. So I saw I'm like, okay. This is an agent who took the time and was kind enough in her busy schedule to tell me why it didn't work, but also that she appreciated my writing. So I kept her on my list. And this time when she did accept me, I'm just like, aha, (laughs) (laughs) I know this is like, you know, it's not just because she's trying to be kind or because I know some of her clients. It's because she genuinely believes in my writing in this book. Nice. Yeah. And then she ended up selling Arsenic and Adobo pretty quickly. There was maybe a few weeks of me kind of cleaning it up because she did have some feedback for me to make it a little bit stronger, but it wasn't like big developmental things. It was just kind of like, well, can you explain, you know, just a little bit more about this character here? Or can you pull back here because it's going on a little too long, but nothing, nothing big. So just some quick cleanup and then she sold it fairly quickly. Cool. What was that experience like? Because it went to auction, right? Yes. Um, (laughs) So... When the first offer came in, I was with one of my writing groups. So I'm a part of a local group called the uh, Banyan Asian American Writers Collective. You'll hear me talk. I'm part of a lot of writing groups because this because commu- <laughs> this this industry is tough, and I, I you know you need community there to help support you, especially if you're part of a marginalized community. So I was with my Asian American writers group um, at the library, and I received the first call. I had to like hide in the bathroom to because <laughs> we were at like a library to take the call. And, you know, when I came back, they could see on my face something happened. And I was like, 
I can't say anything yet, <laughs> but yes, good things are happening. And then when the final offer came in, like when I found, you know, when we decided that we were going to go with Berkeley, I received that call when I was at my previous job. And again, I was trying to hide it. Like I had just finished the class. I was on my way to take my break and I got that call and I started like kind of screaming in the staff room. <laughs> but luckily, you know, like the my, my former coworkers, they were all super supportive. They know I've been doing this for years because I used to like hide in empty classrooms to get writing done because I'm not very productive at home. So like when I, they saw me like screaming on the phone, they're like, is this it? Did you do it? Is it, is it happening? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. So we're going to do that first cue. Can you read your successful query letter for us? So I have dear, <laughs> insert agent name, after an amicable split with my previous agent, I'm currently seeking representation on a new manuscript, a 79,000 word hashtag own voices Filipino themed culinary cozy titled Love, Loss, and Lumpia. When Laila Macapagal moves back home to recover from a horrible breakup, her life seems to be following all the typical rom-com tropes. She's tasked with saving her Tita Rosie's failing restaurant and has to deal with a group of matchmaking aunties who show her with love and judgment. But when a notoriously nasty blogger, who happens to be her ex-boyfriend, drops dead moments after a confrontation with Lila, her life quickly swerves from a Jennifer Cruzy romp to an Agatha Christie joint. With the cops treating her like she's the one and only suspect, and the shady landlord looking to finally kick the Macapagala family out and resell the storefront, Lila's left with no choice but to conduct her own investigation. Armed with the nosy auntie network, her barista best bud, and her trusted doctor Longanisa, Lila takes on this tasty, twisted case. Written as a standalone, but with series potential, Love, Lost, and Lumpia is a 79,000-word cozy mystery that would appeal to fans of Gigi Pandian, Vivian Chen, and Tina Kashian. Mia P. Maransala won the 2018 Eleanor Taylor Bland Crime Fiction Writers of Color Award, as well as the 2018 MWA Midwest Hugh Holton Award with the opening chapters of this manuscript. She is also the recipient of the 2017 William F. Deke Malice Domestic Grant for Unpublished Writers and the 2016 Mystery Writers of America slash Helen McCloy Scholarship. She is a member of the Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, Crime Writers of Color, Banyan Asian American Writers Collective, and the Chicago Writers Association. She's also a 2017 Pitch Wars alum and 2018-2019 mentor. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Awesome. That's a great query letter. I mean, the, the description of the book itself is great, but you have all these additional things that are like, I'm no, I'm really serious about writing. I'm really serious about mm -hmm. publishing, which is really good. And you have those awards at the beginning, which are obviously, you know, a great draw. All right. So how has your experience been since signing your contract, especially were there kind of any surprises along the way? <laughs> well, I signed the contract literally the day I found out my entire company branch was getting shut down because of the pandemic. Oh, um, so 2020 was definitely a surprise, shall we say. But I guess what surprised me is that certain parts moved really quickly. So, you know, I got into this knowing that publishing can take quite some time. So like, I, I was prepared to wait, especially after how long I was on submission before. So the fact that it sold so quickly and the fact that the 
contract didn't take that long. So I was, it was announced in February and I think I signed in April, which really isn't that long. I know people who had to wait six months, seven months because they were just locked in contract negotiations and they couldn't say anything. So the fact that it happened so quickly was like, like a happy surprise. That was, that was nice. Obviously, um, (laughs) trying to debut, you know, in the middle of a panini was not great, but I also love that this gave me the opportunity to kind of connect with other debut authors who are going through the same thing. So like right now, so I'm I'm part of a group that we call the Berkeleys, which is like the Berkeley publishing like 2021, 2022 debut group. And uh, we all, you know, we have a discord chat and just because like, we're all kind of at the same stage because we're all going through the same thing, we were able to bond, I think, in ways that maybe if it was a regular publishing time, we wouldn't have, have such a strong bond. Because you would have like your real life everyday friends and, and you would have different kinds of things that you'd be focusing on. But because we all have the same fears and, and, and issues right now, we can all you know, share it together. We help each other. We come up with creative ways to help each other promo, things like that. So, you know, you, you got to take the good with the bad. It is time for the quick round. I call it author DNA. <laughs> Are you a pantser or a plotter? I am a, let's say planter. I want to cheat um, <laughs> because I do outline, but um, I learned like this method through the, the book coaching certification course that I did, where which, which really suits me because it's basically not every single thing down, but just like the highlights, the shape of the story and, and the emotional impact that it has on my, my protagonist are the things that I plowed out beforehand. And then I get to kind of fill it in as I draft along. So it doesn't, it doesn't take me too long where I lose excitement for the story because I'm trying to nitpick. But I also have this guide that helps me along if I'm feeling lost or blocked or anything like that. As someone who is a true pantser, I would call that plotting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Ooh, underwriter. I am so like, I have friends who are like, oh no, I'm like 50,000 words over. I'm like, girl, my first draft was barely 50. Like I, I struggle to like pad things in. I draft very, very lean and slowly pad it out and add layers as I go along. People who can write consistently 100,000 word plus like manuscripts, like I'm in awe of that. (laughs) Do you tend to write better in the morning or at night? In the morning, definitely. I'm an old lady and like once, you know, I was going to say five o'clock, but honestly, even 4 p.m., I'm kind of like, oh, my brain is mush. I am done for the day. I just want a snack and like to lie down and play video games. It's, 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 you know, if I'm on deadline, obviously you push through it, but I'm at my best and freshest in the morning. I'm just waking up around 4 (laughs) (laughs) p.m. I mean, I'm in bed at like 10 o'clock, so, you know. When you start a new story, do you tend to start with character or plot or concept or something else first? It's been a little bit different for me with both of them. So for the first book, it was like it was a concept. You know, it was just, you know, I came up with a setting murder mystery at a comic book convention. And then I kind of built a character who would best fit that setting. With Arsenic and Adobo, it was amazing. The first two lines came to me fully formed which included the character name. Like I didn't, you know, when people are like, why did you choose? I'm like, I have no idea. It like that character named herself, you know, cause like my first line is my name is Laila Makapagal and my life has become a rom-com cliche. 
you know, I was on the train on my way to work when that popped into my head. And I was like, oh, who the, who's this? You know, I pulled out my phone. I had to, you know, pull up the notes app because I'm like, this is a story. I need to figure out who this person is. So I guess technically the character and the concept of the book kind of came together. Because as I was typing that first line, the second line came to me, which is um, not many romantic comedies have Asian American leads or dead bodies, but more on that later. So like with those first two lines, I had the character kind of like what she was going through with the, her like rom-com life, but then also the general story because like there's going to be dead bodies dropping. I guess technically the, the character came first, but then the story kind of quickly, the plot quickly followed. Do you prefer coffee or tea? I am much more of a tea drinker, but coffee is like when I need to pull out the big guns and I'm just like, I'm dead and I need to push through and I need to stimulate my mind. So black coffee on those really rough riding days, but tea in general for enjoyment. That's funny because there's coffee all over your book. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. Well, okay, so I'm not going to lie. My first book that I wrote didn't get, but like, it's very much a self-insert character. I'm like, oh, look at this queer Filipino-American geek. You know, like, like I was like <laughs> a lot of self-insert me. Whereas Lila, I was purposely trying to make her quite different from me. Um, I mean, obviously there are some similarities because you can't help but put some of yourself into your book, you know, here and there. But I was like, okay, I'm quite tall, so she's gonna be short. <laughs> I, I, you know, I love to, she's, you know, so like even like superficial things like that. It, it, like I was trying to do that so I can, because I'm still so new to writing. I wanted to be very careful that I'm not writing the exact same character every time, or I'm only writing my, you know, like a Mary Sue self insert. So even little things like that. It's like, okay, she's going to be interested in these things that I don't really care about. Like she loves jogging and nah, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like Ann Perkins from like Parks and Rec. We're like, I know it's good for you, but like, God, at what cost? Like, no, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> when you're writing, do you prefer silence or sound? I prefer instrumental music. Because it's almost like white noise at the same time, because I feel like silence is never really silent because there's, you know, now that I'm writing for home and like the, the my, like my front windows are in my office. So having instrumental music kind of blocks things out. It keeps, you know, it kind of keeps the mood going. But at the same time, there's no lyrics to distract me. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? get it down. As I said, I draft very lean. So if I had to turn in a first draft, my editor is going to see things like insert scene, you know, like, <laughs> you know, a lot of like most of that's like, I hate descriptions. They're, they're usually the last thing I put in. So a lot of times will be like bracket insert description, bracket insert reaction, you know, because like for the emotional things, obviously that I need to spend more time on that. But I found with my first book is that I I tend to just get in the, a cycle of making like the first few chapters really, really good and then never moving forward. <laughs> so I'm careful to not get stuck in that now, especially because I actually have real deadlines and I, <laughs> and I can't give my editors, you know, the first three chapters and like see me in a year while I finish out the rest. I got to get it done. What tools or software do you use to draft? When I'm first drafting a lot of times I will use my um, 
my alpha smart, you know, because as I said, I, I am prone to nitpicking if I let myself. So because that word processor doesn't have the internet, so I can't just be like, let me see what's going on on Twitter and then lose like two hours. The, the screen is so small that I can't really see what I've written before. And even if I did want to move like to an earlier scene, it's so annoying to like use the arrow to slowly go up and try to find it. So like I'm forced to keep writing forward. That's the first time someone's mentioned one of those word processing machines on the podcast. If you don't know what Mia is talking about, it's basically a very basic, simple word processor where you can just type words into a document and it's not connected to the internet. It's got a very small screen. So it's meant to eliminate distractions. (laughs) But it is also weirdly a kind of reversion of technology because I remember my grandmother having Mm -hmm. like (laughs) an early electronic word processor that was very similar, but bigger. (laughs) So it's great because it operates on a battery. It has like a long life. Um, It's it's smaller and more, it it tends to be lighter, at least lighter than my laptop. So if I wanted to, you know, if I wanted to like write in my backyard on a beautiful day and I'm like, ah, the Wi-Fi sucks out here. It's that's, that's fine. That's perfect. <laughs> like, I don't need it. I can, you know, I can still get the words down no matter where I am. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Oh, revising. <laughs> I, like, I know there are so many people out there who are like, oh, like, I'm sure like you pantsers. You're like, ah, oh, the, like, the creativity just flows out and I get to explore this one. I'm just like, no, maybe it's the perfectionist in me. I'm like, but this draft is so ugly and I don't know what I'm doing and it's taking me forever. You know, like I like to fix things. <laughs> so like once a draft is done, I'll be like, this is ugly, but I know I can make it good. I can, I know I can make it, well, I know I can make it better, shall we say. You know, I'm a writer. I, is it ever really good? <laughs> but I know once the story is out of my out of my head, I can figure out what it's really supposed to be and kind of nudge it and revise it to to the shape that I want it. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Mostly sequential. Like once in a while, um, especially when I have trouble moving forward, a lot of times I will skip ahead and write the ending or what I think the ending should be just to be like, okay, this is what it's going to be. How do I get there? And then maybe I'll, I'll go one scene before it just to, and then, and then I'm like, okay. So, and then I'll go back to where I was and keep writing forward. It's like, I know people like who love Scrivener because it allows them to just like write random scenes and put them here and there. But because I try to have a real cause and effect kind of sequence to my scenes, it's hard for me to imagine writing so many out of sequence because it's like, well, and how does this connect? Like, how does this one decision lead to this and to that? And, you know, I can do it once in a while. Like if it's a main pillar scene that I need to get out of my head, occasionally I can do it, but I really prefer sequential writing. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? <laughs> I am an extroverted introvert. Um, so like I actually had to take the Myers-Briggs test at work uh, before for like a, like a team building exercise. And it kind of like, it basically told me what I always suspected is that I am a professional extrovert, but a personal introvert. Like in general, you know, most of my hobbies are very like singular. Like I like to play single player video games. I love to read. I love to write. I love to bake. Those are not really group activities, but I was a teacher for like a decade. 
And, and, and I just think like I was an English language instructor, which obviously, you know, for English language learners, I had to be very demonstrative in some ways, especially with the, um, the lower levels that I worked with. And I found that I was pretty good at being able to turn it on, right? Because teaching is basically performance, right? You're standing in front of a room, this one, this crowd, and you're trying to teach and um, keep people entertained. So they stay, like I taught adults for the most part, but even, you know, even adults have wandering attention spans. I was able to turn it on in the classroom. I'm able to turn it on when I do presentations or when I'm in panels. But once I'm done, it's like a switch. Like my students know, like if they saw me leaving and I had my headphones on, that means don't talk to me, a teacher, because she is recharging and she needs like her space. That was the last of the quick round questions. And so back to Corey's qualms and quirks, we're going to talk about the second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized or did you overcome them or how did they shake out? There's like the usual writer worries like, why am I doing this if it's, you know, there's no guarantees. It's so hard. Does anyone really care what I have to say? Am I any good? You know, (laughs) Um, and then there's also, I think, the things like a lot of marginalized writers get, which is like you know, especially in the diaspora where, you know, I'm Filipino American, but I was born and raised in Chicago. I grew up in a majority Latinx neighborhood. I didn't really have exposure to the Filipino community outside of my family. I don't speak the language. So there's a lot of, you know, there's that super annoying question of like, am I enough? You know, am I Filipino enough? Quote, this is the podcast, but I'm doing air quotes. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Am I Filipino enough to be writing these characters? Am I Filipino enough to be writing this story? And also, you know, sadly, I feel like because there is so little representation, that a lot of times we are harder on our own communities than anyone else. And, you know, and it's again, in some ways I can understand that. Things are getting much better now, especially in Kidlit. But, you know, for a long time, I could name the Filipino authors I know off the top of my head, maybe on two hands, right? At most. And, seeing like this Filipino art, you're just like so excited and you pick up these books and you're putting all these weird hopes and expectations that are really unfair to the book and the author. But at, at the same time, because you don't have that, it's, it, it's this weird, like I want to see myself and my own experiences on TV, in movies, in books. And then when I pick it up and you're just like, oh, this wasn't, you know, this isn't what I was expecting. You know, you're you're unfairly harsh because, well, they didn't write the book to your expectations, <laughs> right? They book they wrote their book to reflect their own experiences, and that's what I've done, you know. And so I have this weird fear of people picking up my book and they're like, oh, like she's got these, uh, you know, these stereotypes in there, or like this isn't the real experience, or she doesn't know what she's talking about, and you know, that's weirdly hurtful coming from your own community, so. But at the same time, I just, you know, I just, I say this again and again in every interview I do it. And because I need to remind myself as well as other listeners, it's like, I am just one person. I can only speak from my own experience. We are not a monolith. And the best way to do this is to read from a wide variety of voices because I can only speak for myself. And I hope, you know, if you connect with me and what I have to say, that's awesome. Thank you so much. But if not, you know, it's not the book for you. No book is for everyone. Those are my big fears. 
And the author's note at the beginning of Arsenic and Adobo addresses some of those issues. Mm-hmm. Was that your decision? Was that the publisher who was kind of the, the driving force behind the author's note? It was it was my decision for the most part. So I had someone who did a uh, a blurb for me who was also from a Filipino background, but she also mentioned that I should think about getting a sensitivity reader as well, just because, like as I said before, like I don't speak the Galug, and there are these large gaps in my cultural knowledge because I only know what my family taught me. I only know my family's view of things. And I wanted to make sure I represented a well-rounded area because, again, I have a lot of like immigrant characters who are going to have a very different perspective than me. I have generational differences as well. So I hired a homeland Filipino uh, sensitivity reader, like someone born and raised and currently living in the Philippines so I could get their perspective. It was fascinating because, again, I was going through this with a very American lens Having someone kind of lay out the way that because, you know, I was born and raised here, I just accept certain things as the truth or, or, or just this is how they are. And everyone should kind of understand how this is. And that's it's not true. And I wanted to make sure that my book was fair and reflective and inclusive. I've gotten a lot of messages from people who are like, I don't really read mysteries or I've never picked up a cozy mystery. And so for me, all the tropes that are in there are things that if you are a big reader of the genre, you would probably know about already. So in my head, it wasn't a big deal. Mm. But if you're new to it and you see this bright cover and you're like, oh, this looks like fun. (laughs) You know, I just wanted an entertaining read because things are tough right now. And then you go into it and you're surprised by certain things in there and you get triggered when you're just trying to have a fun laugh, you know, like I, I would hate to do that to anybody. So when my sensitivity reader pointed out a very specific scene and she explained to me why it was triggering, I, you know, I went to my editors and they were like, oh no, we would, you know, like that's, you know, no, you're right. You're just very serious. Would you, at first I was just going to have the content warning with just like, you know, what they said. And she's like, actually, would you mind writing an author's note so you can kind of give some context to it? And I'm like, oh, even better. Thank you. At first I was like, oh God, what do I have to say? But then as I started writing it, I was just like, this is so much better because I feel like I can, again, address those those fears that I had that I told you about, about how I'm just one person, you know, these are my views, but then also let people know like, hey, this is a light humorous read, but I touch on these tough issues and I don't want to seem flippant or, you know, like making light of these very real things that some survivors might be going through. So yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with how it came out. Nice. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is interesting or different or unique? I am now obsessed with candles. (laughs) Part of it is because of Kelly Garrett. And then another part of it is, so like I mentioned my Banyan writing group and um, one of the in-person write-ins that I did was at one of the members' house. And before we began, she lit a candle and she said, you know, oh, yeah, this is part of my writing ritual. Be- every time before I write, I light a candle to honor the ancestors. And I just thought that was like a really beautiful idea. And so like I started doing that too, because what I write is not, you know, it's not about being Filipino, 
but the background is there, the nuance is there. The support of my family has been super important to me. So the idea of writing it to honor my ancestors is kind of really important to me. So every day before I write, I light a candle. Kelly Garrett also got me hooked on candles. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> Those Bath and Body Works sales, man, they get you. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were kind of in the lowest parts of your journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? Yeah, two reasons. The As I mentioned earlier, the community. So that's why I think it's really important to build your community early. Like, don't wait until you have like a finished manuscript to show off or, or even or a publishing deal or anything like that, because you're going to be going through those low points and those periods of self-doubt and having those people there with you to cheer you on, to, to be your critique partners or beta read or, or anything like that really helps you get it through because... I mean, I know lots of people who are like, nobody knows I'm writing. I'm writing under a pen name. But for me, I don't know that I would have continued on if I hadn't had people like Lori inviting me into the community. If I didn't have Kelly teaching me everything that she knew, you know, about writing, about revising, about the industry, or, you know, if I didn't have my friends during this pandemic, I so, so publishing is so opaque. There are so many things that you don't know you don't know. So having these people to talk things through where you're like, am I like, is it just me? You know, is this happening to you too? Having people to bounce these questions off of has is what kind of got me through a lot of points. And then of course, there's the idea of, you know, that very cliche thing of like, write the book you want to read. As I said, things are getting better, but it's still not at the point I would want it to be. Being able to add to the Filipino American voices that are out there was really important to me. I thought I had a different perspective and something to say, and I wanted to make sure it got out there. Do you feel like you made any mistakes along the way that you would like to share with listeners? So maybe they don't make the same ones. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) With my first agent, it's not necessarily that I regret going with her because this was an agent who was very kind to me even before I signed with her. So I first met her before I even had a finished manuscript. I met her when I won that that grant, that Mellis Domestic grant. She goes to that convention and she makes it a point to kind of sit down and talk with that winner to let them know, you know, like, here's, you know, what to expect. And if you have any questions. So I appreciate kindness like that, you know, but like, to be honest, there was maybe another agent that I vibed with better, but it was a newer agent. And this one was a not like a big, big name, but like it was a bigger name. If I'm being truly honest with myself, the fact that it was a big name was one of the reasons I chose her. Maybe she was not the best person for that book, but I kind of pushed aside those doubts because the fact that someone who was established in the industry was interested. I'm sorry, my dogs. <laughs> the fact that someone who was established in the industry was interested in me was so exciting that I just kind of jumped into that without really weighing, is she the right one for me? Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, there are plenty of great agents out there, but not every agent is the one for you. You have to make sure that they align with your communication style, what you want out of your career, your writing, your vision, just so many different things that are very personal. And now that I've had time, to look at it 
maybe I wasn't as fair to the other offering agents as I could have been because I had this one agent offering where I was just like, oh, I'd be foolish to think of anyone else. Like, this is the one. This is the one, you know? So be honest with yourself. Yeah. I mean, she is pretty well known. So Mm -hmm. I can understand the impact that that would have. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey to publication? Writing what you want to write, right? Don't write to trends. As I said, this is, it's a long journey. And if you're trying to write to a trend, if you're trying to write something that you don't believe in, but you think it's going to sell or make you money, I mean, I guess, you know, people get into writing for different reasons. So like that's, that's not a judgment, but I think it's so hard and there are so few guarantees. What kind of keeps you writing? is something that you love or, or have a huge spark of interest in. I would also say, you know, I keep talking about community, but I want to add like be genuine because I've seen, you know, these people networking only to network and be connected to bigger names. And then like once they achieve a certain modicum of success, they drop you or professional jealousy is very normal. It's very typical, but I think you have to learn how to balance This is something I want for myself, but I am also genuinely happy for my friends because there are people who can't separate that. And I've seen people who are just very toxic because their jealousy and envy gets in their way. And they're always like, oh, why isn't it me? Why aren't I on that list? Why aren't I getting the rewards? Why aren't people talking about my book or how did that person get an agent and I haven't? But I've also seen the flip side where people are beating themselves up because they feel so guilty about being jealous of their friends. It's healthy to acknowledge both things, right? I want my friends to have all the success in the world because I genuinely care about them. But... I also want these things for myself because I'm human and I also want to be successful and I also want people to care about my book and my writing. And that's also okay. Just don't confuse them for each other. There's, you know, people want to make it like a zero sum game and, you know, like, oh, that those awful takes where like other writers are your competition. Like, no, (laughs) you know, my competition is myself. Like, can I write a better book than I did last time? Because even you know, the outside success and validation, it's just, it's sad, but it's not a meritocracy, you know, and putting your self-worth and your value as a writer solely on these outside things, you're going to be miserable. Being able to kind of take a step back and look at these things objectively, but also allow yourself to feel your feelings is, is, is really important to kind of stay healthy in this industry. That's great advice. You have been doing this kind of all throughout the episode, but this is the portion I usually call the acknowledgement section of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people who helped you along the way and how? You mentioned Lori and Kelly and Sisters in Crime and anyone else you want to mention? Yeah, of course. So, you know, I've talked about Pitch Wars a little bit. There are some people who've helped me a lot along the way, uh, especially they go by uh, Robin St. Clair, has been a friend and and good writer and critique partner since 2017, since the very beginning. She also gave me some extremely good advice when I was writing the book that became Arsenic and Adobo, which made me completely relook at things because, you know what, 
uh, just because it's fiction doesn't mean you can get away without doing research, shall we say. <laughs> so thanks to them, they saved me a lot of time and a lot of embarrassment and made my book so much stronger. There are quite a few other people in Pitch Wars who've been kind of supporting me along the way. Another one's Marilyn Chin. I also had a lot of other earlier readers. So, you know, shout out to them. Thanks to them. My MWA Midwest critique group, I haven't been a big part of it lately because I've just been so overwhelmed and trying to do so much. But again, they were very instrumental in like the early success. They read my first book. They gave advice for what became Arsenic and Adobo. They kind of helped me realize the setting and make it deeper and more real. And I, you know, I wouldn't have been able to, to write Shady Palms as well as I did without them. Banyan, also the Berkleets, uh, I, we, our group really solidified after uh, I had already turned in the acknowledgement, so I couldn't thank them in the book themselves. But, you know, huge shout out to them for for getting me through. <laughs> you know, even now, we're, we're still supporting each other. We're still, you know, talking about all these different things. We're passing on uh, each other's not. So like, the, the beautiful thing is that some of them have been self-published, some published in YA, and but like you know, those are completely different beasts. Some of them, uh, their books came out in January or, or you know earlier in the year. So every step of the way, those who have come before have been passing down the knowledge to those of us who came later. Because we also have people who are not publishing until 2022. And so they get to benefit <laughs> of watching us kind of stumble through it. You know, a big shout out to them. My husband, <laughs> who's been very, very patient, very supportive. <laughs> My dogs. <laughs> Sadly, we, we lost one of them over the weekend, but they have been just, again, huge comforts and supports. Uh, they usually, you know, kind of sit at my feet and make sure I get my work done for the day. Don't let me leave <laughs> till I'm finished. My family for being, you know, especially like my mom and my dad, you know, being surprisingly supportive, uh, despite, you know, most of the Asian stereotypes. They, they knew how much I wanted this and they were willing to cheer me on and be there for me the whole time. I could go on and on forever. But those, <laughs> those, are, those, are the, those are some of the big ones. Nice. All right. So you read your query letter for Arsenic and Adobo for us. For, so we already know quite a bit about it. I do recommend listeners check it out. I'm listening to the audiobook now and it is delightful. But can you tell us a little bit about your work as a book coach in case people want to check that out? Sure. I went through the Author Accelerator Book Coach Certification Program. So as I mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, I got laid off pretty early in the pandemic and I needed something that could help supplement my writing because, spoiler alert, especially for us debuts, you know, writing <laughs> is not quit your job money. You know, you still need something a little bit more stable. And so a potential Pitch Wars mentee who had applied to me and Kelly, but we, we didn't ultimately go with them, but they liked our feedback so much, they kind of contacted and see if we would coach them. And that's how I found out about book coaching because I didn't know about it until, until they contacted me. And when I did research, I realized, oh, this is what I've been doing for years as a Pitch Wars mentor, but it's something that you can get paid for. I specialize in crime fiction, uh, particularly from uh, BIPOC perspectives. I can do other age categories, mostly adult. I can do other age categories. I can do other genres, but this is where you'll really get your bang for your buck. I only take on stories that I know I can help. There's an intake process. I ask you a lot of really detailed questions, which might be kind of annoying, but there's a reason for that. I want to make sure that we're a good fit. You know, just like 
not every agent is the right agent for you. Not every book coach is the coach for you, right? We all have our own particular styles and knowledge and, and ways that we can help. And I also ask for like a writing sample because again, I'm not just going to take you on to take your money. There are so many people that are out there willing to pray on writers and their desire to get published. And I would never want to be that person. So, you know, I, I even do free consultations and I'll, I've let some people know like, yes, you're writing crime fiction, but this is not a story that I, that I have a vision for that I know I can help. So, you know, and I'll recommend them to someone else. Yeah. That's what I do. That That's all free. But once we decide to work together, you know, then we can kind of talk about what that would look like. All right, Mia, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time out today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Mia's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, tell your friends, or share this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting this show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. If you're enjoying this show, please check out Pub Talk Live. Pub Talk Live is a publishing talk show broadcasting live to YouTube every second and fourth Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, but it is also syndicated as a podcast. Agent Chat Live is a spinoff of Pub Talk Live that features casual chats with literary agents with the intention of helping writers get to know the agents a little bit better. Check out both on YouTube or the podcast app of your preference.